let me welcome you again. I'm so glad that you guys were able to take the day and just commit it to, to the Lord and to each other as we come together to worship and to learn. So I think God's been doing something in, in the life of our church and in our leaders. Um, our, our theme this year is outreach within reach. And that comes from this idea that, um, of course, we want to be engaged in outreach. And, and many of us are, actually, probably all of you are. Um, and But sometimes when we we keep it within the church building or to church events and stuff. And when we go home and we're around neighbors or at the grocery store, sometimes there's a disconnect. I know that's true of me. And so we kind of think, well, sharing the gospel with my neighbor, that just feels a little bit out of reach. And by the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit, it's not. Amen. And so that's what we're going to talk about today. So the, 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 the banner verse for our time together is out of Romans 10. Let me read that one. Romans 10 for Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. So the question today is, how beautiful are your feet? And so I want to just, there's two questions that If you're asking yourself this question all day long, I think you'll get a lot out of our sessions today. Am I using my God-given influence? And we all have influence, amen? Am I using my God-given influence to demonstrate and proclaim the gospel to those in my sphere of influence? And if the answer to that question is no, then we're praying that today would be a breakthrough uh, day, that God would reach your heart and that the answer to that question would change. But I know a lot of you, I know most of you, and I know the answer to that question is yes. And so for, for those of you who answer yes to that question, the question for, for today is, am I using my God-given influence as effectively as I can? Am I being discipled so that I, I can disciple others? So when we were, this, this event is months in the making, and uh, when we were thinking about who to have come speak, uh, we're thinking, who is a really gifted leader who has submitted their, their gifting and their influence entirely to God to do something that seems really out of reach. And instantly, we thought of Keith Weezer. Now, Keith, I first learned of Keith when uh, my, my younger brother moved to Cheney for Eastern Washington University to go to school, and he graduated, and he never came back. And if you know about Cheney, it's like a one-road town where they're still using, like, horse and buggies, and why would anybody stay there? Well, the reason Elliot stayed in Cheney is because he found a group of people, an organization that had such a compelling vision that he wanted to stay and commit his life to it. And that organization is Resonate, and, uh, and they're a collegiate church planning organization, and they have churches on 11 campuses in the Pacific Northwest with many more coming online in the coming years. And that's, that's what God has done through Keith and the leadership. And it, as he submitted his, his authority, his influence to God. So I'm so excited for you to hear from Keith. I think we're all going to be totally inspired. So would you welcome Keith?
It is so great to be here with you guys. Um, I've been looking forward to this uh, for a while. I've been hearing about what's happening here through, uh, through Elliot and Garrett, and I'm really excited to see what God is doing. Uh, kind of following your story from afar uh, has been one really that's, uh, I've just seen some really cool things happen, and man, the future seems really bright in this place. Um, it's not the first time we've been, uh, you know, people playing, hey, what's going on over there at Resonate? Uh, is this a cult? Um, is this, what, what's, what's happening there? Um, and so uh, we've just kind of embraced that as this like first pass. But um, man, we are so excited. Uh, we love Elliot. Um, just the fact of uh, the kind of leader he is, is just a testament to the kind of people that get built up in this place. And so I just want to say thank you incredible job. We get to enjoy the fruits of your, uh, your work and, and, and all that you've done to invest into uh, into the leaders uh, that, that are like Elliot, but I'm sure uh, a lot of those things. Um, Garrett asked me to tell just a little bit of our story and, um, and kind of how we got into the, some of these contexts. And, uh, and so really my story starts, I grew up in Texas, and uh, there's a moment in, uh, where I'm in college, and I'm walking across the campus, and I'm one of those guys that uh, it took me a little while to figure out what I wanted to do in college, and it's like a little past when everybody else would have chosen their major, and I'm, I'm kind of getting to the last, the last minute and being able to say, okay, God, um, what is it that you want me to do, and, and how do you want to lead my life? And, and in this moment, um, God began to just really clearly um, say, uh, as I began to say, okay, God, what do you want me to do? And he says to me, you know, look around. I'm here on this college campus. Look around. Do you see what I'm doing? Do you see how um, all these people are trying to figure out their lives? I want you to go, and I want you to be a trajectory um, alter. I, I want you to be someone who, who begins to alter trajectories. And I said, okay, God, what does that look like? And he began to point, more, point me to college students, and he began to point me to really what it looks like for, for me to be able to leverage my life towards, uh, towards college students. And so that began this trajectory, and that trajectory led uh, me a little while later into a place of being able to, um, here we go. There, that's better. Uh, a little bit later, um, for my wife and I, we get married, and 10 days later, we move up to uh, Vancouver, Washington. And as we get to Vancouver, Washington, we, we realize God's calling us to, uh, to work with college students. We know that God's calling us out of Texas. But when we get there, um, we don't know what to do, and we don't know how to do it, and we don't know exactly how uh, ultimately God wants to use us. And so we, have, uh, we, we moved up in our little Honda Accord. We packed everything we could in there, and we get to our, our house. And, uh, and I don't know if you ever had this moment where you have this, you've, you've kind of said yes to whatever God said and said yes to, um, to, to, to God's leadership. And then all of a sudden you get to that point and like, I've made a terrible mistake. <laughs> I've made a terrible mistake. So we get up here. We don't know anyone in the state of Washington. We don't know anyone in Vancouver. Um, and, and we just, we get there and there's no furniture in our house. All we have is our clothes. And, uh, and we just start crying. We just start sitting on our, it's so, so sad. Um, we were sitting in our living room just crying and saying, we've moved all this way. What do we do? And in the midst of our crying, in the midst of us trying to figure it out, we just begin to, uh, to say, okay, God, what do we do now? And, and that, that phrase, what do I do now, has been one of those things that has led us on a, an amazing adventure. 
And the first thing it led us to do is just to get out of our house. And we began to walk to campus. And we knew that we had to start uh, an organization on campus. We didn't know how to do it. We, uh, we knew that we had to find 15 people to basically sign a, uh, we want to start a club on campus for us to have access to the campus. But we didn't know one person, let alone 15 people. And so we began to walk to campus. And as we walked to campus, um, we, we, met, we met a guy. And um, as we began to uh, talk, as he parked his car and we were walking into campus, uh, he asked us why we're here. And we just very boldly said, we want to start a club. We want to start something that uh, allows people to know more about Jesus. And he's like, I'm a Christian. And, um, and, and so he said, hey, I have some friends that might be interested in this. And 15 minutes later, we had 15 signatures on a piece of paper that allowed us that very day to be able to do something. And here's this thing that begins to happen. We begin to recognize that just saying yes to the next thing, that being able to say, okay, God, I'm open. What are you going to do? I'm, I'm ready to submit to your will. What are you going to do? And so that led us to, um, uh, three and a half years later, to move from, from uh, the Portland area, to, from Vancouver over to Pullman. And we went to Washington State University, and we went there to take over and to be basically a campus ministry leader. And as we began to operate in this, um, there was a moment that happened in my life that, again, God began to press into me being able to think bigger. And, and that moment, moment happened when I was at an Oregon versus WSU football game. And, you know, and the amazing thing about uh, this is you have the stadium, and it's, and it's full of people. And so I began, you know, as they began to, to kick off, and then we began to see this whole game underway, there was just the sense of the Lord just beginning to press deeply on my heart, saying, look around, look around you. And in the fascinating moment in a college town, you can kind of see all the people. Not everybody comes to a football game, but um, I began to look at the masses of people, and I began to look at all the students, and there was something that began to happen in my heart, and I began to recognize most of them will die and go to hell without the knowledge of the gospel. And they're all here, and I can begin to see just the scope and the size of the magnitude of the mission of God in front of us in this little town in the middle of nowhere, right? If you've never been to Pullman, it's, it's, it's in the middle of nowhere, right? But in that place, there's this group of uh, people, and I begin to recognize that the gospel is so potent, that the gospel is so powerful, that the gospel changes people, and yet our container was so weak. Our the way our churches operated were so weak compared to the power of the gospel. And I began to say, okay, what is it, God? How do, so we were operating, and there was about 40 or 50 kids that were part of our campus ministry. And that was kind of norm for all these campus ministries. But then in the context of 37,000 people being in the stadium, I began to say, 50 is not enough. It's just not enough. So, God, what do we do? And so what began to happen is we began to alter um, what had started 32 years earlier um, as a campus ministry. And we began to say we've got to figure out how to leverage the power of the church and to be able to take the potency of the gospel and put it into a package that begins to break open the gospel to reach this university. And so we began to, um, we, we didn't have any model, we didn't know what we were going to do, but we did know that the gospel had to be put into a package that began to have people alter their trajectories towards it and to be able to fit into the lives of college students. 
And so in 2007, we morphed our campus ministry into a collegiate church. And there was a lot of naysayers and a lot of people um, that said, this will never work. But we began to believe that God was telling us to go forward with this. And so we started a thing called Resonate Church on WSU in 2007. And we began to see God just move in a significant way. The same leaders doing some of the same things, but all of a sudden God opened the floodgates. And we began to see... um, we began to see people respond to the gospel in a, in a significant way. And it was not the kids who would just go to another church and found ours um, to be a, a better show or a better program. It were these kids that just they had never, like, I was just so amazed many times when I've talked to them. And they'd come from places that never heard the gospel before. But they would show up, and they would have their lives radically altered. And they would begin to tell their friends about this thing. And what began to happen is we began to have more and more people show up. And we began to have rooms uh, that were filled. And we began to not only have people from WSU, but then we started uh, about six months after we started, we had all these people um, from the University of Idaho, these these vandals um, would come over, and they would start to, to, to be able to, to, to integrate, and they would be, want to do And so we began to say, okay, God, is that opening the door to something else? And we never meant to go multi-site, but we had people starting to show up, and so we began to say, well, let's start something over at the University of Idaho. And as we began to do that, we began to need more leaders, and we began to have more open spots to be able to have people to begin to serve. And what began to happen is people began to have their gifts ignited um, to the leadership of the gospel, and they began to operate towards this, and we began to see more and more things happen. And we began to see this, this thing grow and grow and grow, but then we began to recognize that there's still a missing component, that we can do stuff that's relevant, but we have to make sure that the, the essential part of this is to making sure that the gospel goes out. And we began to start um, sites and we began to start campuses. In 2014, um, we moved from just having something there in the Palouse, we began to start something in central Washington. And that began to have something that ignited things there and we began to see the same movement. We began to recognize that as we go, there's these places and, and the gospel, the, the harvest, you know, the, the fields are widened to harvest and we began to believe that thing. And so from 2014, we just began to say, hey, every year we want to send out a team. But then we began to recognize that just sending one out per year uh, was not enough. And so we began to, uh, two years ago, we began to send two out. And then we began to recognize that when you start doing multiplication, the math works in your favor. And as you begin to make disciples that make disciples, what happens is you begin to see not just addition, but you begin to see multiplication. And so this year we got to see not just one, not just two, but we got to see four churches be planted. Next year we're going to see another four churches be planted. And our goal is to plant 21 churches across the Northwest by the year 2021. And we're heading towards that direction. But ultimately what that looks like is a few key things that we decided in the very beginning. And I want to go through kind of some of the core ideas that really begin to shape us and begin to help us to be able to point towards something that's looking like, man, this is kind of having this movemental feel to it, that, that people are finding Christ and helping others to find Christ. And God is opening doors, just like the very beginning when we walk to campus. The same realities are happening day after day after day as we begin to have eyes to see them. One of the things that um, we begin to recognize is we've got to exist for the sake of the lost. We wanted to be a church that didn't exist for its members, but existed for the sake of the lost. And so this is one of those things. As we begin to understand what this means, it means that our programming and the things that we do internal are very, very minimal. That we try to figure out how to have the least amount of programming to have the most amount of impact. That we want to take the least amount of time in the context of church things so that we can have the most 
most amount of time to send people out into the world. That we believe that if we focus on just internal relationships, that it's at the sacrifice sometimes of external relationships. And so existing for the sake of the lost began to be a mantra that we began to say, how do we point our eyes out? How do we point to the people that are not in the building as more important than the people that are in the building? And this began to be a foundation for us being able to know what to celebrate and how do we begin to celebrate. The other thing that we begin to say is we want to value those we don't know yet. We want to value those that we don't know yet. And that was one of the sending impulses to be able to say, how is it that our church values those that we don't know? How is it that we begin to say, we don't know anybody at Central Washington University, and yet they're worth our personal sacrifice. They're worth us leaving our jobs, selling our homes, being able to go to those places, even though we don't know anyone there, because they deserve to, to hear the gospel, that there's people there. Although there's, there's great churches and there's stuff going on, there's still a group of people that might have this opportunity to hear the gospel if our actions begin to value them, even if we don't know them. And so one of the things that we value is to be able to say, we want to, we want to value those that we don't know yet. Another reality that we have is that mission is how we become healthy, not what we do when we, be, uh, when we become healthy. I hope that makes sense. That mission is what has how we become healthy, not what we do when we become healthy. Because oftentimes what happens is we think it's the culmination of all these things. That, that I'll begin to live towards others. I'll begin to live and, and begin to recognize what Jesus is doing around me when I begin to have my theology in order. When I begin to have my, uh, my morality in order. When I begin to have my piety in order. When I begin to have all these things and all these boxes are checked. Then I'll be able to live outside towards the world around me. And what we've begun to recognize is that when we encode this in reverse, when we begin to say, hey, the first step is for you to begin to point your life towards others, it drives us into the word. It roots us into the word. It drives us into our devotion. It drives us into being able to say, God, you've got to transform me from the inside out because I'm living in a way that begins to display you to the world around me. And if I'm not changed, it points to you. And we begin to recognize that when our community is built around mission, when our vision is built around mission, what happens is all kinds of things that are inherently healthy become to characterize our church. When we begin to put the focus uh, not on how am I fed, but how am I sent, it really begins to change the mentality of the people around us. And, and what happens is this, um, it also changes the people that are a part of our church. And so there's many people who have come into our, into our church that have, uh, have a container of church and have an understanding of this is what church should do. This is who a pastor should be. This is what I expect. These are the programming um, things that I, are best for my family. And when we begin to say, okay, our goal is for you to be able to live as a sent person on God's mission, sometimes that doesn't fit. And so there's many churches who have grown because of Fred's Night Church, um, as they begin to say, hey, there might be other places, and we're totally okay with that. Because when we begin to get into it, there's a sweet spirit of us being able to say, hey, we're all aligned to something. And what happens is we begin to, to sometimes, we don't add as fast as we want to, but we multiply faster. We begin to sacrifice being able to have full rooms for being able to have many rooms. And this is the key for us to be able to think through how is it that we begin to start with the idea of mission, not end with the idea of mission. And we begin to say from the very beginning, you know, what I, what I love is two-day-old Christians 
being able to go out and being able to say, hey, I don't know much, but here's what I know, which is so biblical, right? We see the guy saying, hey, I don't know how Jesus did this, but I was blind and now I see, and that's the transformation, and I have something to say. And that guy had something to say, and what I love is when we begin to say, you've got something to say. The most significant group of people, although you're non-Christian friends, so go to that, so go to that group of people. Don't wait until all of your friends are Christians and then try to find somebody. Go to the people that you begin to have in your life. And so in that, um, one of the things that we try to figure out is as we, point the, as we point to the world around us, being able to focus our message around three key needs. And one is personal transformation. That each and every one of us, we desire three things, I, I believe. This is our church is founded on being able to say, how do we live in mission and communicate this? We live towards people and saying, hey, we all desire for personal transformation. There's you know, a billion-dollar industry around helping you to be able to have personal transformation from the gym to, uh, to your social life, um, all kinds of things, your health, your habits, all kinds of things. We all want personal transformation, and that's a key thing. So we talk about um, how is it that ultimately we have the greatest personal transformer, and that's the Holy Spirit through the power of the gospel in our lives. Not only that, that, that we see that people want connection. And as we think about orient our life towards mission, as we begin to say, man, being able to operate in the context of community is such a deep need. And so when we begin to say, how do we start the process of sharing the gospel? We connect them to personal transformation. We connect them to community. And then ultimately, um, I, I really believe, especially with the demographic of early 20s, um, there's a lot of boredom. And that boredom of, of life, we begin to point towards, man, I want to travel, I want to do these ad- adventure, I want to have all these things. But the greatest, the greatest opportunity that we have to have meaning is when we begin to align ourselves with the work of God. When we begin to say the meaning and purpose of your life is coming alongside a sovereign God as he begins to work in the world around you. And these things begin to create um, really a synergistic way for us to communicate the why behind the gospel. And so these are those backgrounds. So here's some, just some truths that we've been able to kind of see um, live out in, in our story as we have started about 12 years ago, and we've been able to see a group of 20-somethings come into college. Most of the people that are, are a part of our church didn't have a church background, and yet as they begin to graduate college, they're, they're moving to cities, they're starting churches, they're having lives radically altered by this the first thing I want to say in terms of just a truth is that we have to connect mission to community. That we have to connect mission to community. And so in this, what we see is Jesus attracted people, that there was an attractional nature as Jesus began to have people drawn to him. And some of those were his, his works, but we begin to see people that are just like, I want to be around Jesus. I want to be around um, this reality of the, the grace uh, in, the, in the life of Jesus. And what we begin to see is that people are drawn, outsiders are drawn. When we begin to see two people that inhabit, that have Jesus as a part of their life, who've chosen to follow Jesus, as we begin to have the groups of people that begin to live towards each other the way that Jesus lived towards people. And it really begins to have a tangible picture of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And it's a tangible picture that is so deeply connected to you know, being able to attract them to, um, maybe it's not the tenets of the gospel, but it's the practical, tangible realities of the gospel. I remember one of the 
at the very beginning, there was a, there was a girl named Chrissy. And Chrissy, um, this, is, this is a very collegiate thing, right? There's, there's a few reasons people would come to our church. One was the gospel and their exploration of Christianity and spiritual things. The other was because there was other single people there, and they wanted to be able to find people to date, right? And so, um, and so that was just a part of, you know, a part of what would happen. Chrissy um, got invited to church and thought, there's some cute guys here, so I'm going to go. And, and I remember at that point, we, um, we sat in tables, and, um, and Chrissy would always sit in the very front, and Chrissy was a diehard atheist. Like she said, no way. I'm here for the boys, but I'm, uh, this is, I, Christianity, I have no, I have no uh, desire for Christianity. And so I would be preaching, and she would sit there with her hands crossed, like just, she would sit there, legs crossed, hands, hands crossed, right in front of me. And like the whole time, you know, you're, you're up there and you're trying to, you know, to have your heart is coming out and someone's just looking at you like, you're totally, you know, full of it here. Like, this is, this is not something I have any but belief in. And so there was this sense of every week I would have the Chrissy issue right there. Um, and she would come. And, um, and then there was this moment where she had this dramatic transformation. She goes from being radically non-believer to saying, I'm all in. And I remember asking, Chris, asking Christy, Chrissy, um, hey, tell me what happened in your life. And here's what I was expecting. Like I was expecting, Keith, week after week, you gave the gospel in a compelling way. Week after week, you, with your logic and your stories, you captured my heart and won my soul. None of that. <laughs> None of that at all. Um, it was, I got to be around a group of guys. And how they begin to love each other, I begin to recognize I have no understanding of this love. And they begin to say, hey, this is not a part of, this is because of Jesus. We, we love each other in this way because of Jesus. And it captured her heart, and it changed her life. And, and this is what happened over and over and over. It's not by me having eloquent words, but it's about Jesus in action. The tangibility of these things is what we began to see. And what I love about this idea of, of Jesus in community and communities being on mission is that what we begin to see is that it begins to... to, to reach people in their biggest point of tension with the gospel. That most people don't have like these these doubts and the tenets of Christianity or being able to, or if they do have those doubts, they don't address those things. It's not how they become someone who follows Jesus. Oftentimes we keep our doubts. Oftentimes those things that we've been like, I'm struggling with this part. I'm struggling with this part of spirituality. This is part of the story of Jesus. We keep those doubts, but what happens is they shrink down compared to the sense of the tangibility of the love and the grace of God. And so you begin to say at one point the doubt was really big and the connection and the reality of what I see in the real life is really small. And so that makes me a doubter. That makes me a hater. That makes me someone who would cross my arms and say, no Christianity for me. But at some point what happens is the scope of being able to say, this is the life of Jesus begins to be so significant and the doubts begin to be so small. They begin to say, my choice is Jesus. This is what we begin to see, but it only happens when they begin to see a life lived around people who love each other and demonstrate Christ. And so as we think about this and we think about what it looks like, oftentimes, at least in the historical understanding of how people decided to follow Jesus in the context of church, it would have this progression. It would have this idea of you have to behave 
like we want to see your behavior change, and within we want to see your belief change, and when those two things happen, then you can belong. You can be a part of this, but you have to look like us, you have to act like us, you have to be demonstrably a part of something having been changed before you can be us. And what we've tried to do is figure out how do we flip that around? How is it that we can begin to live in a way where someone can belong, where someone can see Jesus tangibly displayed in Christian community, that they might have a sense of being able to say, hey, that's what causes me to believe. That's what causes me to be able to say yes to Jesus, is that I begin to see an undeniable pattern of grace in action, of the gospel being able to transform lives, and this begins to push me towards a behavioral change. And so we begin to say, okay, they're on trajectory. Man, maybe there's still these massive sin issues in their life, but we're not gonna, we're gonna keep them close and we're gonna bring them close. And as they begin to have these belief systems change, we're gonna be able to address what that looks like. Now, in just a minute, I'll tell you, we are strong on what behavior looks like. So, it's, so don't hear me saying we don't care what people do as long as they're a part of something. That's not resonate at all. But in this, we begin to see this idea of being able to say, how do we get people to feel like they belong? In your life, in, if you're a part of a small group, are there people that are on the fringes that are starting to feel more and more like they belong? Are they watching your life and are watching you, you interact with your spouse, with your friends? And, and is that painting a picture of what Jesus looks like? We try to get people in our home as much as possible. We want them to see Jesus in action. And when we get them to our home, we try to bring another couple in. And just being able to say, how many people in a month can we get into our home, can share a meal with our family, can begin to see what, what, what this looks like, how we begin to interact, the authenticity, the, the sense of transparency that we live in our lives, because we want them to feel like they can belong, that their issues don't separate them from Christian community and definitely don't separate them from Christ. So in that, as you begin to think through uh, how this works, what I believe happens, uh, sociologists tell us there's two different things that happen when people join churches. One is a reaffiliation. A reaffiliation is based upon, I have a certain belief system that already, that preexisted, and that belief system now I carry into this church context. And so this is happens when when. People go from one church to another church, or maybe they have a belief system, and they go from one generally Christian belief system to another generally Christian belief system, but it's already there. And that's, and that's what they call reaffiliation. I'm, I'm reaffiliating. And sometimes our existing structures can do really well for reaffiliations. But what happens when that person has no, has no respect for our Bible, has no respect and understanding of spirituality? has not ever seen that demonstrated in a healthy way. Those are those moments where it's an actual conversion. And I want to say all around, and this is what I love being in the context of places in the Northwest, because it's more and more the case in our world, that, that people are far more distant from an understanding of an authoritative Bible or, or being able to say this is different, differentiation from any other religion with any other book, with any other leader, right? And they put them all together. So what is it that differentiates us? And being able to see this in action, being able to see the demonstration because of the resurrection, we begin to have be people of hope and people of grace that begin to live this out. And so it begins with people, God's people, oftentimes before we begin with God's truth. 
that they begin to be converted to Christian community and then converted to the faith system behind that Christian community. And sometimes I wish that was different. And sometimes I wish that we could just start by saying, uh, hey, this is Christianity. It makes more sense. We have a leader, we have a book, but we have a story. And that story of resurrection is different than any other thing. But it's just not the case. And they have to see it in action. And so this is what it looks like for us for, to, be, to be able to see this play itself out. So I want to be able to say that's, that's a key thing for what we've been able to learn, is just making sure that our communities are places for people to join and people to gather and people to be connected. The next thing is obedience-based discipleship. Obedience-based discipleship. And obedience-based discipleship is really, um, I, I grew up in a context where all of my discipleship was information-based discipleship. It was um, Sundays was an information dump. It was, hey, there's a, there's a pastor who's going to basically just give you an information dump on theology every week. And your role is to be able to, to remember as much as you can you know, and our church got better at better at that, and they began to give us um, handouts with blanks, and they began to use cool slides, um, just to be able to get our retention rates up in terms of what we got. And all of our small groups were Bible studies, so we would get around, and we would mainly be able to say, "What does the Bible say?" and how do you begin to have more information about what the Bible says? All good things, right? But they're incomplete. They're incomplete um, when we begin to think about the fact that we can have a lot of information. And that information can make us very knowledgeable about what the, what the gospel says. But if we don't take that knowledge and make it into places where our lives are transformed, what happens is when we live our lives out, they don't look any different. We just have an informed worldview, and we have an articulated way to be able to talk about um, the, the bigger pictures of life and death. And that's not enough, and that's not compelling. What we begin to see is, is this. We begin to see the need for there to be this sense of impact. And we begin to see how this works. So let me give you um, an illustration uh, of this. And, uh, and I just want to apologize ahead of time for this illustration because it's basically a research that's done on terrorism and, and, and how terrorism is actually this um, decentralized movement, right? And, and how our government has had such a difficult time being able to eradicate terrorism because it has in it this, in, like, this DNA of movement. And for us to understand this, um, I just want to illustrate this, but, but it's a little insensitive, so I just want <laughs> to let you know. Um, so you begin to think about uh, this idea of there's this group of people. And this group of people um, is, is you know, a group of individuals that uh, live their lives in, in this way. But then there's a, uh, there's a vehicle. There's a, there's a messenger. And then this uh, vehicle, there's messenger, contains a message. And what we begin to see is it begins to move this way. So groups of people have messengers that have a message. Now, this is, this is common to be able to see how this happens. But the one thing that's different, um, again, so I apologize for this, um, but I do want to land this point, um, that when we begin to see there's a, there's a group of terrorists, right? And then they have people that go out and they begin to spread terrorism. And they begin to spread the tenets of their, uh, of their belief system, which is uh, anti-West, you know, kill the infidel, right? And so they begin to send people out and, and rally and say, hey, we're a group of people that have this belief system, and they have people that go out and they begin to recruit and say, this is what our message is. 
But that, that doesn't ever take and expand the footprint of what they're trying to do. Here's what happens, is when we begin to add this, this part. Impact. When they go and they do it, when the terrible things happen in our world, they begin to illustrate the, the strength of their message, and they begin to be people that say, we're not just going to talk about this, but we're actually going to do something about the beliefs that we have. We're going to take the message, and we're going to do something with it. Oftentimes in church, we have a group of people, and we have a vehicle, and we have a message, and then it just goes back to the group of people, and we begin to do this whole circle right here. We have a group of people, they have a vehicle, and they have a message that basically just goes back to the group. What people are looking at is, is whether or not we're going to have impact in the world. It's football season, right? I love football. And a group of men get on the field, and they get in a huddle, and they devise the play. But we don't watch football to be able to figure out, man, that is a terrific huddle. Good job. That is symmetrical. It looks like there's a leader. It looks like he's given you a plan. We watch football to see if they're going to run the play. We watch football to be able to say not if they're going to huddle, but if they're going to make an impact, if they're going to overcome the adversity and get the ball into the end zone. And they might have a plan, and they might have a leader, and they might have a whole organization behind them to be able to say this is what we're trying to do. But if they don't break huddle and go make an impact, it doesn't matter. The huddle is not what we go to see. We go to see the impact. And the world around us is asking the same questions for us. The same question on, are we going to be transformative people? And so one of the things that we've, we've tried to do is try to figure out, what does it look like for us to be able to make sure that we have obedience-based discipleship? Now, we embed the Bible, and we want people to be Bible, biblically literate. But all of our small groups are based around us being able to say, what is God saying to you, and what are you going to do about it? And we ask that question ad nauseum. What is God saying to you? Are you listening to God and are you doing something about it? Because my neighbors, what they want to know is if my, not if I have a, a leader and a book and a religion, but if my life is different from theirs. They want to know if it works for me. They want to know if there's something there that I have that, that, that has community but also has impact in the world around me. And so being able to say, I mean, our lives are being changed. And when we get people into, uh, into our groups and they begin to say, hey, this is who I was, but it's not who I was. This is what my marriage looked like. This is my, the disaster of my parenting. But what I'm being able to see is by the grace of God, there's something that's happening that's beginning to change my life. And us being able to say, I can articulate the changes and the transformations in our life. We have to get into environments where we're be, be, di displaying those things. And so obedience-based discipleship is, is what we want to see happen. And, and ultimately, um, it's not just discipleship, but it's disciple-making. One of the things that we track is not just are you being more like Jesus, but are you helping more people to, to be like Jesus? So one of the key statistics in our church is third-generation disciples. Is are you helping people to be able to not just grow in Christ, but being able to equip them to do that over and over and over? So one of the things that's so key is asking, what are the generations of disciples that have come from my life? Are people that I'm pouring my life into ultimately being able to do the same things, or is it, or is it ending with me? Um, next thing, we use this phrase, um, God's got it all rigged. One of the key things that we've seen um, in our story is that, um, is that we need to be connected to the bigger story. 
that one of the key things that helps people to go from cowardice to courage, from I don't want to talk to anybody about Jesus, which I mean, that is my story. I'm the, I'm the least uh, likely person to live towards mission. I'm, I'm deeply introverted, very um, conceptual. Um, and so in, in terms of like my comfort level and what that looks like, it's only being able to watch um, God do these stories in my life that's really happened in this way. And so what we begin to see is, man, this, this sense of, uh, I tell my people all the time, stories of, of early Christianity and stories where God has it all rigged that we begin to see all of these things begin to morph and begin to move in the very beginning that begin to point to God walking ahead of us. And so every week in our staff meeting, um, we get everybody on a call. And the first question I ask them is, where are you seeing God at work? Where are you seeing God at work? Because the thing that I want them to understand is that God is always at work. That, that when we begin to what we call, have, we call this evangelistic optimism, and that scale of evangelistic optimism, do we believe that when we put ourselves out there that God is meeting us in those moments? Do we believe that when we go to the neighbor's house and we begin to shift that conversation from something that's totally cool in terms of just being able to talk about the weather and sports and life to be able to talk about something that's more significant and more um, connected to their personhood, that God has already wired that person to be able to hear that, that God has orchestrated events in there that, that we're not walking in blind, that God is already at work as we begin to join him in that. And so I love telling about these, these moments where, against all odds, the mission of God prevailed. One of the key things is for us to be able to see that the entire Bible is, um, especially as we look at the New Testament, is the picture of really what it looks like for us to be able to see first century movement that's connected to an entire idea that God has as a missionary God. And as we look at the Bible and see, okay, the one the one thing is there's a missionary movement that's happening here. And, and, and Paul's trying to write letters, and he's basically saying, okay, let me give you guardrails and clarity to what it looks like as you're already on movement, as you're already making disciples that make disciples. And as we begin to see this thing radically expand, we see this. And oftentimes in our context, we look at the Pauline letters, we look at all the, the New Testament documentation as a list of things that we should just live our life, and we miss the context of this was a radically multiplying church. Church. We missed that this was him just trying to figure out, okay, let me give you some guardrails, because what has already been established is that you're disciples that make disciples in the midst of persecution, that you do this. So I don't even have to tell you that this is the way it happens, because you're already doing that. So let me give you some guardrails around that. And so what we talk about all the time is that God's got it all rigged, and we help them to be able to say, this is, this is how this works. In the very beginning, the first, the first way, day we got to... Uh, to, to Pullman or the first event, um, my wife and I showed up and we, we knew that we had to focus on freshmen, that all successful things on college campuses start with freshmen being a part of it. And so we spent um, the entire first week of school um, being on campus talking to hundreds and hundreds of freshmen. And we, we knew that God was going to do something. We knew that we'd moved to Pullman in the middle of nowhere uh, for a reason, that God, God was walking ahead of us and doing something. And so we'd prepared. And at the end of that first week, we had um, secured a, uh, a fraternity to be able to 
um, to have a, a big event at. And so uh, this fraternity had gotten kicked off campus for violating rules, and it was just this empty building kind of in the middle of where everybody gathered. And so this is perfect. This is going to work. And so we spent all week talking about uh, what we were doing and had this big event planned on Friday. And so we planned it, started at 7, seven rolls around, and it's just my wife and I. We have all this ice cream that's melting. We have all this uh, food that's sitting out. We're ready for them. At 710, uh, three people show up. Um, a, a guy and two girls show up, and we're like, oh, this is just college. This is just people that are arriving late. This is just what happens when you begin to you know, start social things. And so, uh, so we talked with them, and um, the minutes kept ticking by, and it got later and later. And uh, at 7.45, I looked around, and I, and I couldn't find my wife. Um, and I was like, I wonder, where, I wonder where Paige is. And I walked, around to the back of the, um, I walked around to the back of the building, and there she was sitting on the step, just crying. And I sat down, and I was like, hey, tell me what's up. She's like, Keith, we moved here. We said yes to God. We've poured our heart into this. There's got to be more than three freshmen. Why is it that this didn't work? And we just sat there, and I didn't have an answer for her. I didn't know what, what was going on, why we'd gone there for three freshmen. We'd had a ministry far bigger than that that we'd left, um, but three individuals. And so um, I said, well, babe, we've got to go back, and we've got to connect with these three freshmen. And so we went back, and, um, and, and we, we began to do that. Fast forward, um, one of those freshmen, uh, her name was Meredith, and Meredith ultimately, as we grew in ministry, became a leader in that ministry, and ultimately, uh, Meredith, uh, as she began to uh, grow and, and who she was, she uh, was connected to uh, her family, and she began to tell her family about this thing called Resonate, and um, as, as uh, her younger brother decided to, to come to uh, to the University of Idaho and to be a part of Resonate there. And one of his choices was because his sister uh, was a part of that. Two years ago, um, that kid, his name is Colin, planted a church down in Monmouth, Oregon at Western Oregon University. And that church was the first third-generation church plant that came out of our system, that he moved to central Washington to help plant that church, and that church sent a team of people. I want you to know that we would have never thought that that moment when we're sitting on that back porch, when we're crying because there's only three students, that one of those students had a little brother, and that kid would end up being the third generation church plant for our church. We would have never believed that in that moment. I want you to get in your moments of most significant disappointment. You never know what God is doing with your yes. You never know what God is doing in that relationship that seems to go nowhere. You never know what's happening and how he's orchestrating his work around you. And so as we think about uh, this and we think about uh, really what it looks like, um, I, I, want, I want you to get that, um, that this is 
this is what we're called to be, and this is what it looks like for us to be able to have, to be people that say, this is what God's doing. This is how God is orchestrated in this, and this is how we want to see him move uh, in, in, in our world around us, and that God is doing this, and that as we begin to connect in community, as we begin to, to, to make impact in our lives, um, this is the story of, of what we've seen, and it's just a group of college students, not a whole lot of money, not a whole lot of wisdom, but a lot of energy um, that have gone out, and, um, and it's a group of people uh, that are making some impact uh, in the world around us. So I want to ask you this. Um, all of us have a sphere of influence, and, um, and if you have something to write with and something to write on, um, or your phone, um, I, I want to just... I'm going to just ask you a couple of questions here um, about what God is doing. One of the things that I love to do with people is just to, for them to have this discovery of what it is that God can be able to kind of open their eyes to around them. One of the things that I do uh, with, our, with all of our, our, our church and specifically our leaders is I ask them to draw out their, uh, their discipleship tree. And I ask them to say, okay, who are the people who you've poured your life into. And that might be uh, over the course of your life. It might be currently. But you begin to say, okay, okay, these are people that I've had a direct, a direct role in discipling. And then there's begin to be a, the fruit of, man, this is where I begin to see them. And this is where I begin to see uh, another generation of them discipling other people. And it helps us to begin to understand the scope of our life. And it helps us to understand, um, hey, what is in terms of making disciples, where are we pointed? What does it look like? What can we see in, in terms of the fruit, and where do we begin to see that multiply? It's one of the things that I'd encourage you to be able to kind of just try to figure out, what's your, what's your discipleship tree? Who are the people that are connected to your life? And here's what often happens, is people, we, we, we begin to see, we didn't recognize, oh man, that's actually someone that God's given me influence with. That's actually something that is a kind of a passive relationship that I can turn into an intentional relationship. And what a powerful thing that is when we begin to move towards people with intentionality. The second thing I want to, to just um, ask you to do is, is to be able to write um, 1 through 12, just make some spaces 1 through 12, and to be able to ask um, basically these questions. As you begin to look at the world around you, are there people around you um, as you think about 12 total people, that you can begin to say, is there something that God can give me eyes for 12 of them? As we begin to think about outreach within reach, this is within reach, being able to say, okay, what does it look like for you to say there's people that are, that are in your life, maybe they're coworkers, maybe they're neighbors, maybe they're people that you pass by, um, that you have some sort of a sense of being able to have connection with, that you begin to just to say, okay, is there some people in my life that, that are, are consistent in my life? And if they're consistent in my life, can I begin to have eyes to be able to see them as God sees them? To be able to figure out how, it, how they can begin to um, be someone that, that, that I'm connected with on more than just a passing by moment. But there might be four people in your life outside of your immediate family that you begin to say, God, there's, there's people that, um, that, that I want to have a heart for. That can you take and help me to understand how to live towards them in an other-centered kind of way. To be able to meet needs that they, to discover and meet needs that they might have. To be able to have something where that they begin to see my heart for them. And, and I want you to get this. That 
that influence always follows acceptance. That when you begin to live towards people and have a heart towards them, you'll begin to influence them. Those four people, you'll begin to simply, um, your life will be able to influence them in a, in a significant way. The last part is, uh, is this idea of having a plan for one. Is there somebody that you can say, man, I want to pour my life, in the next 12 months, I want to pour my life into them so that they might be able to do that to someone else. And I would say this, that if you guys did that, then you're going to see the growth of the people around you. You're going to see the growth of this church just by being able to say, I want to take one person. And at the end of a year, I want to be able to help them to be able to have the capacity to be able to do what I've done to them with someone else. Just being able to do that. And, and, and this is the, the secret of multiplication. You do that over the course of a few years. And your legacy will be significant. And, and I believe that more and more we should think about what's the legacy of our lives? What comes after us? As we begin to change eternities, as, as we begin to walk towards this, how is it this, this begins to affect that? So I want to give you just a little bit of time um, just to, to do those two things. Um, would you take and say, um, even if you just do this, eyes for 12, heart for four, plan for one, 12 total people. Are there seven people that you can begin to say, hey, I can begin to list this out? Are there four people that you can identify uniquely as being able to say, I want to move towards them, not just to be able to see them, but to be able to have a heart for them? And is there someone that you can identify today that you can begin to say, I want to have a plan for this person? Let me give you a little bit of time, and I'll come back in just a minute. The last thing I want to tell you is just um, encouragement. Um, God is, 
in these, in these relationships, my belief is that somewhere in those 12 people, God's doing something. And my hope is that we begin to see and have eyes to be able to watch God at work and being able to say, what do I do next? What's the next thing? And so, um, so my prayer for you, and let me uh, close out by praying for all of us, that we would put our yes on the table. That our story of Resonate Church is just a group of people that didn't know a whole lot, didn't have a whole lot of modeling, but just said, okay, God, the next thing, we're going to say yes to it. And, uh, and I'm excited to see what God's going to do as we begin to do that as a group of people and just say, okay, God, the next thing, the next thing, I'm, I'm going to say yes to whatever it is that you begin to illuminate to me. Let me pray for us. God, um, the stories that you write are so incredible. And they use ordinary people to be a part of your extraordinary plan. And so, God, I pray across this room that you would take and you would give a supernatural courage um, to people, that they might walk in close community, display you, Lord, that they might have a transformative, impacting life, Lord that they might be able to see all of this as a part of your plan and the fact that you're walking ahead of them. So God, give them a sense that you are there and their, their yes is gonna be connected with your work in their lives. Lord, we pray that it would be so. Help us, Lord, in your holy name, amen.